This is Hubwonk. I'm your host, Joe Silvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. Despite the nationwide focus on the COVID-19 pandemic, Americans are divided on the best way to mitigate risk. While data strongly suggests the COVID-19 vaccines are effective for preventing serious illness and death, controversy still exists on the safety of the vaccines and the utility of wearing masks. In the extreme, some would eschew the benefits of getting a vaccine in the belief that getting sick with the virus would pose less risk than the vaccine itself. Others would accept the effectiveness of the vaccines, yet also insist on mask mandates and social distancing for the vaccinated. Add to this continuum of opinion the disagreement amongst parents and teachers to send unvaccinated children back to school, masked or otherwise, amidst a new outbreak of a more contagious Delta variant. With more than 18 months of global data, can we now look toward our scientific community to offer consensus-building evidence? Or has the political and cultural narrative created too much mistrust and misinformation to create an informed way forward? My guest today is author, surgeon, and public health expert, Dr. Marty McCary. A professor at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, he has published over 250 scientific articles on the redesign of healthcare, medical innovation, and vulnerable populations. Dr. McCary and his team of data scientists at Johns Hopkins have dedicated the last 18 months of their research to understanding how COVID-19 and its variants behave in populations, and how best to distribute and administer vaccines based on that knowledge. Marty will share with us his views on the effectiveness and durability of vaccines, the effects of new variants on breakthrough infections, and the potential need for booster shots. When I return, I'll be joined by Johns Hopkins surgeon, Dr. Marty McCarran. Hubwonk is a production of Pioneer Institute, a Boston-based think tank that seeks to improve the quality of life in Massachusetts and beyond. Pioneer is a 501c3 organization that relies on your support. Please visit pioneerinstitute.org to make a tax-deductible donation today. Okay, we're back. This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Silvaggi, and I'm now joined by Johns Hopkins surgeon and author, Dr. Marty McCary. Welcome back to the show, Marty. Great to be with you, Joe. Okay, now I don't want to bury the lead. We're uh, recording today. It's Monday, uh, August 23rd, and we just had news that Pfizer has received full approval of its vaccine, uh, now known, I think I've got it right, Comirnaty. Um, some vac- same vaccine, new name, new label. Uh, two questions. What took so long? And do you think this is any kind of a game changer for uh, COVID-19? Um, I don't know about game changer. It's really just affirming what we already knew. And that was that the vaccine has an impeccable safety profile. You know, we have given 364 million doses of vaccines in the United States. And in my opinion, the FDA full approval is long overdue. And I know some other respected physicians who feel the same way. They were waiting for what they call manufacturing data. There's a section of the application called CMC. It involves things like stability testing, inspections of uh, factories. But we're already actively giving the medication out. What I think the American people wanted to know and what the FDA should have told us a while back was that this drug has the full faith and seal of the US FDA and people can feel confident about it because the number one driver of vaccine hesitancy is fear that there could be a complication 
that pops up down the road. And that's just not the case with vaccines. With vaccines, complications do occur, but they occur immediately. And that's with all vaccines. You just don't see things pop up two years later. So we could have used this um, support from the FDA much earlier. We didn't need to wait for all the stability testing data just to tell us what kind of expiration date to put on the vial. Uh, we should have gotten this a while ago. So let's take a step back. Uh, you've joined the show in the past as an expert in sort of healthcare reform and how to impose um, cost constraints on uh, our expensive healthcare system. Uh, but now you've uh, and your team of data data scientists have really focused on COVID nineteen, and this began early last year. What uh, drew you to COVID nineteen analysis, and you know, what what was that tipping point where you said this this deserves my attention? So I'm the editor in chief of the second largest trade publication read by physicians called MedPage Today. And in that capacity, I read a lot of articles that come through from specialists and experts. So before the pandemic, I saw the early warning that many doctors were putting out there saying, look, this could be really catastrophic. And I stopped and I sort of did a focused interview with one of them. And I realized, hey, this argument is pretty rational. It's hard to, to deny that what's happening in Italy is, is about to happen here. And so I went on the media to say, look, we need to abandon the idea that this is somehow contained overseas, that somehow American exceptionalism means that the human immune system is stronger or that we're better at behavioral modification. We're not, and, and we're just as susceptible. So early on in this um, whole pandemic, I, on one of these shows, sounded the alarm. And that got a lot of attention. I posted a lot on social media, telling people to get ready. And on one of the Sunday morning talk shows on uh, in uh, the beginning of the pandemic, I said that hundreds of thousands of Americans will die from this infection. And it could be more if we don't take it seriously. And of course, I got criticized, you know, arrows thrown at me. And I mean, Doctors and CEOs were angry at me, all kinds of folks. And then as the pandemic played out and people realized, hey, that projection was accurate, then they were like, hey, now come give us your, your thoughts and tell us what you think now. And that's how my story of how I got so involved in, in COVID. Well, I, I think it was in that time I, I discovered you as be, uh, for being um, aware that this was a, a airborne disease rather than something passed on handshakes or elevator buttons. Uh, you were among the first to advocate for mask usage. That's right. So I wrote an article in the New York Times at the beginning of the pandemic, or at least in that spring period, saying we need universal masking. Look, we need to stop arguing about this. We can't do the research fast enough. Let's play it safe. And this is airborne. This is SARS-CoV-2, which is COVID-19, spreads just like SARS-CoV-1. And our public health leaders and our medical establishment should have known that. And they've made a terrible mistake by, you know, scratching their chins. And, hmm, let's figure out how is this spread? Look, it spreads just like SARS did. Um, so uh, that, that was an early sort of um, putting myself out there uh, again getting a lot of criticism. You know, a lot of people really hated me saying, you know, me saying, hey, this was going to be bad, that we need to temporarily stop travel, you know, close businesses for now until we figure this out, and then calling for universal masking. So I was very unpopular in the middle of the spring of last year. 
Yes, and and, and uh, congratulations! You you survived the uh, slings and arrows of of the uh, col- uh, p- popular culture, uh, and here we are, eighteen months later. Uh, so I want, uh, by way of background, bring up um, with uh, up to speed here. Um, we're in Massachusetts here, and we're among the states with the highest rates of vaccination. I, I just pulled up from the Mayo Clinic. Um, this surprised me. We have ninety nine percent of residents over sixty five vaccinated, and eighty three percent of adults. Uh, as well. Um, how effective are the three vaccines uh, that we now have in in general uh, distribution? Well, you're going to hear a lot of frenzy about breakthrough infections. But right now, these breakthrough infections are really limited to mild or asymptomatic cases. So the vaccine or any immunity for that matter, be it natural or vaccinated, downgrades COVID from a serious health threat down to a mild common cold-like illness that may be seasonal. And uh, right now, given all the hysteria about vaccines you know, not working or the, you know, the infections are coming through people fully vaccinated, just remember, there is no data right now that the protection against severe illness, which is what we really care about, is waning at all. We know that the antibodies wane a little bit. We know that Breakthrough infections go up over time. That's pretty clear. But there's no evidence that the protection against severe illness is waning or diminishing. And that's a big deal, right? And so if, if I told you, hey, you could get a booster that would protect you against the mild common cold-like illness, but has no added benefit in protecting you against severe illness, a lot of people would say, no, thank you. And that may be the case. We just don't have the data on it yet. You know, there's two types of immunity you get from getting the virus or from getting vaccinated. One is the antibodies. That's kind of like the frontline infantry that protects you against getting sick initially. And then the other is the cellular immunity, the B and T cells that are like tanks that take a couple of days to roll out and then they fight hard. And they're the ones protecting against severe illness. And all indications are that the vaccinated immunity still gives you very strong tanks that protect you against severe illness so far. Well, that's a rave. And uh, I, I, what you've said concurs with all the research I've done. But I, I want to say there must be some uh, vaccine uh, cautious or reluctant people in our audience. So to, to those listening, uh, you've already attested to the effect of the efficacy of the vaccines. Are there any troubling side effects or complications attributed to the vaccines that you have seen in your research? Well, there are some complications. I think we need to be honest about it. And glazing over them or not mentioning them is one of the reasons why we have vaccine hesitancy. People see through um, things like the J&J pause and they're like, wait a minute, you were, you know, the same day the New York Times had an article calling for vaccine mandates as the FDA uh, pulled all the J&J Uh, vaccines off the shelf and for almost 10 days had resulted in a lot of canceled appointments. I mean, probably over a million. And so we got to be very honest with the complications. They're rare. They're ultra rare. These are the safest vaccines probably ever made of any vaccine. With the mRNA vaccines, the complication profile is even more rare than the J&J, which is a blood clot related complication, tends to be in women, tends to be women 20 to 50 years of age. And so in that population, I don't recommend the J&J vaccine. Uh, mRNA vaccines, extremely effective. Moderna gives you more side effects. 
the interval is probably not the right interval. You know, when they picked three or four weeks as the interval between the two doses, they um, it's a lot less sophisticated of a choice than people think. And they were just thinking, look, we're dealing with this massive pandemic. They didn't know if there was any end in sight. They were dealing with an incline in cases. And they crammed these two doses together. Turns out that with any vaccine, the longer you space those doses, the better the immune protection. It's true of shingles, HPV, you name it. And so um, one of the reasons why we may be seeing the breakthrough infections so quickly now at six and eight months is they were, it wasn't spaced properly. It wasn't probably they just didn't have the foresight to know that it would have been better spaced three months apart. That study has been done with the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine. It's been done with the Pfizer vaccine. When you take the second dose, three months after the first dose, your immune protection is greater than three times stronger. And that's what I did for myself. That's what I recommend for other people. And I think that's the, the ideal strategy we need to shift to. Uh, is the one vaccine more effective than the other? And I, I will say, uh, I, I'm a Pfizer guy and I had three weeks. Um, my wife is a, um, uh, Moderna person and, uh, it was four weeks. Uh, has that had a measured effect on the efficacy of the, of the vaccines? They all seem to do really well with their cellular immunity. That is the tanks that take a few days to kick in and then ward off severe illness. But in terms of the common cold illnesses or the breakthrough infections, they're roughly similar, but a study from the Mayo Clinic recently did suggest that with Moderna, it was better at six months, um, a lot better in preventing breakthrough infections. And uh, that may be because the Moderna, if you remember, has a longer interval between the doses. Sure. To my earlier point, it's a longer interval, so that's why you may be seeing better protection. Uh, does a Delta variant change any of the uh, efficacy figures? Uh, is it uh, e e more likely to break through than than the uh, and than the first three variants? Yeah, everything is constantly changing, so the efficacy numbers are very fluid. Uh, in that Mayo Clinic study, it was about seventy-three percent versus forty-three percent efficacy. But remember, let's say you see the number forty-three percent efficacy with the Pfizer dose. That doesn't mean that 43% of people who get it are protected and the remaining 67% will get the virus. That's not what efficacy means. And this has created a lot of confusion. So just two seconds on this. It means that of the people who get the, vi get the infection, 43% of them were in the vaccinated group and 68, 67% were in the placebo group. So the, the infection can still be rare in both arms of the study, but that's what efficacy means. I think people hear, oh, if the vaccine's 50% efficacious. Well, that means there's a 50-50 chance I could get it. That's not, that's not how you interpret the right number. And we're talking about uh, infection, not disease. In other words, it's still virtually 100% effective at preventing serious illness and death. That's right. So the CDC put out a jerry-rigged study that really bothered me. It came out two uh, weeks ago where they said, look, natural immunity is not as good as vaccinated immunity in the state of Kentucky. And we're looking at this thing thinking, what are you talking about? You look at the numbers, 
over a quarter million people vaccinated. Sorry, over a quarter million people had natural immunity from prior infection only, and 243 tested positive. We don't have any indication that any of them were sick. So to put out there that like somehow these are failures of of immunity, um, we have to remember that when people get infected after natural immunity or after vaccinated immunity, it tends to be asymptomatic or mild the vast majority of the time. And the testing is so sensitive now, the PCR test, especially with Delta, it can, the PCR test can pick up one dead virus particle. So just because you test positive doesn't necessarily mean, you know, this is a public health concern. It may just mean you're colonizing it. It may mean that the virus is becoming endemic. It's everywhere. It's ubiquitous. And if you test 100 people in America today, probably seven or eight are just going to light up the PCR test because it's that sensitive. Uh, you've written a great deal about the power of natural immunity. You just mentioned it. Uh, uh, you know, for folks who have gotten COVID-19 in the past, um, I think you've uh, written that uh, they actually may be more uh, protected against future infection than the vaccinated. I'll let you answer that. But also, um, for those listening that have not been vaccinated but have had the virus, are you recommending they get vaccinated? So it depends. Uh, you know, if somebody has risk factors for um COVID, then I usually recommend after the infection, after they were, were sick and recovered, that they get one dose. Now, I, I don't recommend that strongly. They probably have pretty solid natural immunity. We just don't know how durable it is. So far, it's, it's going pretty strong. But um, that's generally what a lot, a lot of doctors have been putting out there. Now, if somebody is low risk and they were sick with COVID and they, got, they recovered, so they have natural immunity, if they're low risk, I don't even know if they need any vaccine. I don't think the evidence really is out there to support that they do. Cleveland Clinic had a good study on this, and other studies have been done, including one in Israel that showed that natural immunity was 6.7 times better than vaccinated immunity. As a matter of fact, natural immunity has been around longer. We've studied it longer. A year and a half into this pandemic, we're not seeing reinfections of people who recovered from COVID illness. We're not seeing reinfections at any appreciable degree resulting in severe illness. Okay, we are seeing asymptomatic people light up on PCR tests, but we're not seeing severe illness. Show me somebody who has developed severe illness after already having been sick from COVID in the past. We just don't see those cases. I mean, I'm sure there's an a rare, super exceptional case out there. But the idea that somehow it's ubiquitous, it's not. You know, people tell me all the time, well, you know, I've heard of a case. Show it to me. I mean, it's like Bigfoot. You know, everyone thinks they've seen it. But show me some evidence. We are not seeing reinfections result in serious illness, period, at any appreciable degree beyond an ultra rare case. That, to me, tells us that natural immunity is real. It's effective. It's durable. And a year and a half into this thing, it's going strong. Meanwhile, vaccinated immunity is waning. We're starting to see those breakthrough infections creep in. Now, a lot of public health officials are afraid to be honest with this because they don't want people to run out there and just get the infection and instead of getting vaccinated. And look, I agree. I don't want anyone to go out there and get the infection in order to acquire natural immunity. But let's be honest with the data. It, natural immunity does appear to be effective. And I go through this in a Wall Street Journal piece titled The Power of Natural Immunity. So, um, of course, you bring up a good point. Um, there were uh, 
infected people longer before there were vaccines. So we've got an 18 month natural experiment on, on reinfection. So that's an important point. But I'd like to shift our focus then to populations that are, uh, that are not vaccinated, namely uh, children, um, uh, people below the age of 18. What are the risks posed by COVID-19 for children? And now we're heading into uh, back to school time. Uh, everybody wants to know, um, you know, what, risks are posed by these unvaccinated people? Well, I think number one, and when we talk about kids, be it vaccines or masks, we have to remember that right now we still have hundreds of Americans dying a day, and they are adults who have no vaccines and no natural immunity. And that population is where we really need to focus our efforts as everybody is arguing and fighting about what to do with kids. Let's just remember that we are losing hundreds of Americans today and they are adults with no vaccinated immunity and no natural immunity. And that's where I think we should all come together and focus all of our efforts and encourage those people to get vaccinated. That's our public health crisis right now. Today in America, there's more kids in the hospital with respiratory syncytial virus than there are with COVID-19. Now, I'm not downplaying it. There are kids getting sick. But remember, we may have upwards of 50% of American children who have had the virus now. It's a lot of people. It's spreading so fast among children. We're not sure if it's coming from adults or other children, but when you hear stories of a school opening and on day one, 400 kids tested positive as it did in Palm Beach County, they're not getting it from other kids. They're getting it from their homes. The schools may be a safer place for kids than the alternative of not being in school. And we've seen the harm of kids who have... Um, been beat down from this whole, all this entire world of COVID. So when we talk about kids dying of COVID, we have to also recognize kids are dying from suicide and malnutrition and sexual abuse and other problems that are um, sometimes magnified from these policies that we enact and place on kids. Um, now, uh, vaccine kids, I'm very pro-vaccine, as you can tell. But the dose is probably too high for kids. The two-dose short interval regimen, which is what we have for kids 12 through 15, that's probably too high of a dose and the interval is too short. People are developing complications after the second dose. They're rare, but it's a, it's a rate of myocarditis that's about 50 per million or about one in 20,000. And maybe even more common than that, but that's what we have eyes on right now. The first dose is 100% effective in the Israeli study of kids 12 through 15. That's because kids are very strong and robust and their immune systems work well. So if the first dose is 100% effective and kids are getting complications after the second dose, why are we married to this two-dose regimen for kids? It never made sense to me that a healthy 12-year-old girl is getting the same dose as a big 50-year-old man. Never made sense to me. The dose is probably a little too high for kids. Granted, still, we're talking rare complications. But for if I had kids, I'd recommend one dose for healthy young children for now. Um, we, we, uh, that, that's, that's great advice. I, I haven't heard that yet, and I, I think uh, it's very, very useful. Um, last week, uh, to, not to change the subject, we heard from public health, health officials, um, specifically Dr. Fauci, recommending folks consider getting a third booster shot it, um, implied is that uh, the first two have faded in their efficacy and we need a quote unquote booster. 
Um, is this recommendation based on evidence that you've seen? Uh, specifically, are we seeing our uh, immunity uh, fade to the point where we're now vulnerable to severe illness and death? No, we're not seeing immunity fade to um, result in a greater risk of severe illness. We're not at all. That, that data is not there. What they're doing in the government is preparing that that may be the case. And many of us are saying, hey, let's wait. Let's let the data speak for itself. Let's wait until we have some evidence that the power of vaccines really declines in protecting against severe illness, not just, not just positive tests and breakthrough infections, but if people are actually developing severe illness at an increasing rate over time after vaccination, then we can talk about boosters. But they basically made up their mind. Now, one argument is that like, they made up their mind before the science. And another argument is they're just preparing, they're planning ahead in case people do need boosters. Um, I want to return to the notion of uh, you're an advocate of masks and you acknowledge there's uh, quite a few breakthrough infections. I think what those two uh, facts combined can... Uh, can invite uh, advocates of additional masks or mandatory masks to say, look, we ought to be um, uh, masking up and distancing, uh, even if we're vaccinated, because we can still be infected. Uh, and this creates the opportunity for you know, a Petri dish of new variants that might swoop down and, and uh, uh, kill us all. Do you see any logic in saying, okay, um, despite the fact that you're vaccinated, you ought to wear a mask so as to uh, reduce infection? Uh, and thereby reduce the odds of a new variant uh, coming to life? Well, if you don't know somebody's vaccination status or you know they're non-immune, I think it's reasonable to wear a mask if you're going to be interacting with them. Um, the problem is we can't wear masks forever. It's not good. It's not healthy. It's not good for the human connections in life. And to be honest with you, uh, loneliness is a real epidemic, and it's been that way before COVID, and it's been magnified We've got to rebuild communities and get people back together. It's having a toll on people's physiologic reserves. I think it's a, a matter of courtesy and respect to wear a mask around people who don't have any immunity. Um, but I'm not sure anyone is really going to outrun this lion. I mean, take, for example, children under 12. Probably half of them have had COVID. And uh, it's not good. I'm not saying it's good, but it's the reality. I don't know if any kid can really avoid COVID between now and January, February of next year, which is the earliest we could see vaccines in that group be approved, administered, and the immunity kick in after administration. So um, it, this, is, this is a highly contagious virus. And I think what it means is that if your kid has a pre-existing medical condition, you got to be super careful. And if you are 12 years or older and have a pre-existing medical condition, get at least one dose of the vaccine right now. For teens, one dose may be all you need. For adults, um, space your doses out to three months. That's my personal opinion. So again, I don't want to put words in your mouth. You're saying we can't outroad this line, meaning all of us are going to encounter COVID sooner or later. Uh, you're saying, do you want to uh, meet that lion vaccinated or not vaccinated? And you're saying definitely vaccinated. Um, and for children, healthy children, um, it's virtually inevitable, but fairly harmless. Yeah, it's very hard for this virus to hurt someone young and healthy. That's always been true. But it's so contagious now with Delta, which has been the game changer, that everyone 
on planet Earth will probably either get COVID or get vaccinated. A lot of kids have COVID and have don't even know it. Probably 90% of kids have had an asymptomatic case of COVID or very mildly symptomatic case. And so they're developing natural immunity and God designed our body correctly and it works. How did, how did uh, India have such a um, narrow epidemic growth curve where they peaked and it was a big boom and then it was a bust? What happened? Did they have mass vaccinations? Did they have millions of contact tracers? No, they didn't. Those are all good things, but they had natural immunity kick in. And so that's what we're seeing happen right now. And if you look at the states that have been hit hardest by Delta first, Missouri, Arkansas, they have peaked. And now we're seeing a decline. Missouri's down 10%. Arkansas is down 5%. That's good. We're moving in the right direction. Nobody's saying go out there and just get COVID. Getting the vaccine is a thousand times safer than getting COVID. But let's be honest with the data. Things are starting to peak with Delta, and it is ripping through communities very fast right now. So if you're not immune and you can get a vaccine, you need to go out and get your first dose right now. Okay, that's some uh, very clear advice. Uh, so let's uh, let's shift a little bit and talk about uh, the unfortunate event where one of our listeners is going to get sick uh, with the virus. Uh, they're perhaps not vaccinated, they're infected, and they're ill. Uh, has science developed effective therapies for those who actually are infected with COVID-19 uh, that can help them through this and perhaps reduce the severity or the likelihood of, of, of death? Uh, what's the best we've developed in the last 18 months? Yeah, it turns out there's some pretty promising therapeutics or medications that are coming out. We anticipate that a phase three trial is going to read out any day of a drug made by um, Merck. It's called Molnipravir. Pretty impressive phase two trial result. It's an antiviral. It's almost like a Tamiflu effect, if you will, with the flu. And so it could be better, could be even more potent. I think all of these are going to be important because COVID is not going to be eradicated. It's not going to be eliminated. People misunderstand herd immunity to mean that it's elimination of a virus. It's not. It, it's defined in the purest sense as slowing. In other words, it's reduction in the rate of spread. And we did see a significant reduction in the spread of the virus in late spring of this year. Um, but we didn't have elimination. And we always knew that the remaining 10 to 15 percent of non-immune adults were eventually going to get the virus seasonally. We knew, thought it was going to circulate season to season. Turns out Delta really ripped through that population quickly as soon as it emerged out of India. So Delta is going to be with us for a long time. We're going to need some of those oral therapeutics. Um, and I think we need to recognize that we have to learn how to live with COVID. Um, COVID has been downgraded by immunity. It's not been eliminated. And, you know, I don't like it. You don't like it, but it's something we have to learn to live with. There are four other coronaviruses besides COVID-19 that have circulated each year during the cold season for decades or longer. And we have learned to live with them. They collectively comprise about 25% of the cases of the common cold. And COVID-19 will become the fifth seasonal coronavirus. Well, that's great advice on which to end our uh, conversation. I, I'm sorry for the uh, uh, bullet format of the uh, questions, uh, but I wanted to cover a lot of ground uh, in our limited time. And and you were great. You uh, you knew your stuff and uh, helped our 
our listeners understand a lot more about COVID-19. The takeaway is get your vaccine as quickly as you can because you're not going to outrun this lion. That's right, Joe. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. It's always a pleasure talking with you. Likewise. Thank you, Marty. This has been another episode of Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. If you enjoyed today's show, there are several ways to support us. It would be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe to Hubwonk on your iTunes podcatcher. If you want to help others find Hubwonk, it would help us if you give us a five-star rating or a favorable review. And naturally, we're always happy when you share Hubwonk with friends. If you have ideas or comments or suggestions about future episode topics, you're welcome to reach out to me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk. Hubwonk.